coming to the end of Nehemiah now. We're getting close. We're in chapter 10 today. Nehemiah goes to chapter 13. We saw how the first part of the book really emphasized the work of the wall. It was rebuilding the wall, and then we saw how the kindness of God led the people of God to repentance, which is always the point, right? God's kindness is not intended for us to go, thanks, I deserve it, and now go on my merry, merry go way. But the idea is the kindness of God draws me to say, wow, this is too much, this is too good, this draws me closer to the Lord, and this is what we see happening to the people in Nehemiah. Look what the Lord has done for us. Look at the renewal, look at the revival, look at how he's rebuilt our walls, brought us security, called us a people again, brought, brought back the word of God. And when they heard the word of God, because that's where revival always comes from, Amen. revival comes from a love for the word of God. We look at revivals throughout history. It, it's not just something magical that falls down out of heaven. Although it is a gift from God, it comes from the people of God devoting themselves to the word of God. And this brings everything else that comes along with that. Would that include the supernatural? Most definitely. But it doesn't necessarily begin with a supernatural manifestation. It begins with people devoting to obedience to the word of God. And this is what's happening. So the people of God, for the past few chapters, they started getting into the scriptures. They saw that they were out of alignment. They said, there's a feast coming up that we're supposed to celebrate and supposed to honor. So they stopped everything and they said, everybody, we're doing this feast. We're doing the Feast of Tabernacles. We're doing the Feast of Booths. We're going to get together. Everybody, let's obey the Lord. Let's read the scriptures. And as they continue to do that, they came to the place where they said, we want to confess, we want to pray, we want to repent. So in chapter 9, there's this big prayer of repentance where we saw that they assembled, they, got, they fasted, they put on sackcloth, they put dirt on top of their heads. These are dramatic outward signs to show an inward thing that's going on. Is it a, and we talked last week how there's value to outward signs. By themselves, they can become empty. If that's all they do. And that's what the Pharisees fell into the trap of. Look at all the outward signs. You missed it, though. You forgot the inside. And Jesus said, you're a whitewashed tomb. So you, you, you focused on the outward sign to the exclusion of the inward. It's supposed to be there's inward movement here, and that leads to an outward sign. I've been saved. Christ has made me new, and now I'll be water baptized. I've been, yeah, I love the Lord, and I want to partake in, in, the, in the body of Christ, so I'll eat his body, and I'll drink his blood. So in the same way, there's many things that we could do. I want to show humility before the Lord. I can kneel in prayer. But it's possible for all these things to be done totally in an empty way as well. So we, we acknowledge there's value in outward signs, but not in and um, of themselves. They can serve something else. So these people are repenting, they're repenting, they're repenting. Then we come to the end of chapter 9 in verse 38. And they, so they finish their prayer and then they say, because of all of this, we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed documents are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. So chapter 10, of course, is very much connected to chapter 9. It's, it's a continuation of, we pray all this, we pray all this, we repent of our sins, and we're making a document. We're making an oath, we're making a vow, we're making a curse, the scripture says, uh, against ourselves. And chapter 10 details exactly what was in that. So chapter 10, verse 1, on the seals are the names of Nehemiah, the governor, the son of Hakaliah, and then 84 other people who I'm not going to run through right now. <laughs> so there's a lot of names on here. Just trust me on that. And they're all listed. And there's significance to that. 
We'll get back to that in a second. Verse 28, let's keep reading. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding. So it's explaining, look, we couldn't list every single person's name. We listed the heads of households. We listed the top of the clan. We listed people who would include others down in their flow chart. But we're, we're not going to list everybody by name, but we're still including everybody by describing, look, we're talking sons, we're talking daughters, everyone who has knowledge, everyone who has understanding, kids that were old enough to have a clue about what was going on, they're included in this. Join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk into God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and to do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his rules and his statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. If the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. We will also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths. So all this is included in the work of the house of God. Now they're being very detailed in what that would include. The new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God according to our father's houses at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. So they're saying we subbed out who's going to take care of the wood for particular months and particular times. I've got this month. I've got that month. It wasn't a supernatural fire that was burning. It was one that required sacrifice and offering. We obligate ourselves to bring in the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all of every tree year by year to the house of our Lord. Also to bring to the house of our God, the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our heads of our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil, to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground. For it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all of our towns where we labor." And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes of our house for our God to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister, and the gatekeepers, and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God." Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We turn to your word right now with devotion, with hunger, knowing that you have something here to show us, to reveal to us. God, there's the, there's the historical, literal thing of what was taking place with the people in this moment in Jerusalem around Nehemiah. 
There is the practical application of which we can understand what you would have us do today. And then the most glorious of all, God, there, is the, there are the things here that point to Christ. There are the things that show us the Lord Jesus in type and shadow. So open up our hearts to see and receive all of it. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Chapter 9, verse 38. They made a covenant in writing. Why? Because they wanted to put weight on it. They didn't just want to say, man, yeah, this has been a great few weeks. The wall has been finished. We've been praying. We've been celebrating. We've been feasting. Praise God. I guess everything's just going to continue on like it always has. No, they recognize the weight and the importance of writing something down. We need to write things down that matter. This is just an obvious thing, right? Businesses, they need to write out values. Even a household, it would be good for you and your household to identify your values. And the Clark dining room we have on the wall the Clark family values we've identified them well don't you already have them in your heart we do there's some things we know to be true but we find it even more valuable to say we're going to identify these plainly we don't want to forget about them we don't want to turn from them well I want to be confronted by them every time I sit at the dinner table there they are are you living up to these John Michael because they haven't changed have you continued to, to remain faithful there's a weight and there's a value in writing things down This isn't a hard case to make. So they're understanding. We want to recommit to the covenant that was already established. In chapter 10 and verse 28, like I said, 84 names are listed and everybody is lumped in as well. Pretty bold thing to put your name personally on it. Hey, put my name on this document where we're going to bring an oath and a curse. I don't know that I've ever prayed that way. God, curse me if I don't obey. No, I'm looking for mercy. Like, hey, I'm not looking for that. I'm like... I want to obey, but if I don't, I'm trusting in your mercy. And they're saying, we call down the curses of God on us if we don't obey. Well, spoiler alert, they don't obey, unfortunately. Um, If you haven't read ahead yet, you're going to see that when we get to chapter 13. So they put weight on it, though. This is the point. They're sincere in their devotion and they're sincere in their desire. And we're going to talk about that later as well, how this, this is the good news of the new and better covenant. And I prayed this way earlier. We don't have what they have. They were frustrated by the law. The purpose of the law is to keep showing them that they can't keep the law. This is my perfect standard. This is the best blessing for human flourishing. Here it is, humanity. Live up to it. And they're going, that is clearly the best and the right and the perfect way. But we can't. We attempt to and we can't. We attempt to and we can't. We attempt to and we can't. Why? Because our hearts haven't been made new. We're trying to do these things, but we are, we are dead, spiritually dead. If only we could be made spiritually new. Well, praise God for you and I who live in the new and better covenant, who have been made new by King Jesus. This is why we actually have freedom from sin. Wait, do we still sin? We still have the capacity for sin. And it's likely that we still have sin in our lives at times. However, the difference is we can truly walk in freedom from it, as opposed to these people who... This was the purpose of the constant ongoing sacrifices. Jesus is the sacrifice once for all. He covers all sin from beginning to end for whoever would trust in him by faith could receive the grace of God. But they've, they've waited this moment. They've waited it on themselves. And even though they're going to be frustrated by the law again because they will fail at it, God is merciful and they still understand it's still the right commitment to make. It's still the right thing to do. They didn't just say, well, our fathers failed and our fathers succeeded. Our fathers failed because that's what they just prayed. They saw the pattern of Israel. Can't they clearly see this is just another moment where they're going, we're going to do it right this time. It's like not even long after this. It's not like three generations later and Israel is back in sin. It's like the same people. 
a few years later. We're going to find out. Nehemiah leaves. He's like, okay, praise God. It's all done. I've been here 12 years. I'm going to go back to the king of Persia and serve him as a cupbearer. Well, he comes back a few years after that. And already the things that they're getting ready to commit to, they had already sinned again. Is, is their response, though, appropriate? Yes, it still is. It's still right to say we want to love the Lord. We want to follow the Lord. We want to pursue the Lord. <clears throat> But until Jesus comes to make people new, until God fills people with his Holy Spirit, they don't have the ability to fully walk these things out. Verse 28. So the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, all who had separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have understanding. We notice here that the people separate themselves from the people of the land. But how do they separate from the people of the land? It's not a physical separation that takes place. The big key is the separation unto the law of God. This is what makes them distinct. We're going to come back to that. I want to end there later. We're going to go somewhere. Uh, We're going to continue down in our verses, and we're going to come back to this portion. We're going to look specifically at the three things that they highlighted. So it's important to understand, they didn't just make up a new covenant. What they're doing here is not like, hey, We're just going to commit and make things up, and this is what we're committing to. No, no, no. We don't write the script for how we're going to obey God. All they're doing is renewing what they already see in the scriptures. But they they prioritize a couple of things in particular because of the issues that they are facing in the moment. So one of our values as Salt Church is we fight where the fight is. Well, there's a lot of different things that matter. Yeah, there's a lot of things that matter, but we need to understand the day and the age that we live in. Martin Luther understood the moment that he lived in. What did he need to fight for? He needed to fight for the doctrines of grace. Why? Because the biggest primary fight in the moment was that people were thinking that they could purchase eternity. They thought they could purchase forgiveness with God. The Catholic Church was teaching false doctrine in that you can actually buy indulgences. Hey, would you like to indulge in a particular sin? That'll cost you this much. Go enjoy yourself. It's now covered. And they were thinking that they could act and behave their way into the grace of God. And, and Luther was preaching and teaching. And No, it's not that at all. It's by faith. It's by faith. And that was the fight that he was fighting. We need to understand where the fight is. In the same way, these people needed to understand where their fight was. So they didn't just say, hey, here's the whole. They didn't just rewrite the entire Old Testament mm-hmm. law and go, all of this, all of this, all of that. They said, there's three things in particular we can see that we failed at most miserably. And that's what they prioritize here. So what do we see they prioritize? In verse 30, here's the first thing they reference. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. That's the first thing that they reference. What's happening here? Specifically, they're committing their romantic relationships and their sexuality to God. In obedience to God, we are different. That's what they're saying. This is something we failed at. We have mixed and mingled, and it's not, this isn't a race issue in case there's any confusion there. This is a who is your God issue. This is what's taking place. The very reason that Israel goes into this cycle of despair and turmoil is because, so we've got King David, a good king, a godly king, the best king that Israel ever had, a man after God's own heart, still imperfect, obviously, but a man after God's own heart, his son Solomon, full of wisdom, but what did he do? brought on hundreds of foreign wives and who at the end of his life, they led him astray to follow foreign gods. 
which begins the cycle of Israel's demise of following foreign gods. So the very thing that started this whole thing is intermarrying with godless people or people of a different god, which is no god at all, or demonic gods. So this is the cycle that started everything off, and this is something that the Lord has commanded them in the law of Moses. You're not to give your sons and daughters. So the language here to be, for a quick history lesson, arranged marriages were a large part of of human history. It was just seen as an obvious and wise way to do things. Uh, Of course, we're too intelligent for all of that. We're far more sophisticated, and we know it's best to let 18-year-olds just figure it out on their own, and mom and dad just say, I don't know, if you're happy, whatever makes you happy. It works out way better, right? Unfortunately, our ways haven't been ideal, as, as the divorce rate can tell us. But, so I'm not making a hard case for, I think we absolutely need to return to uh, um, arranged marriages. However, involvement, involvement of godly mothers and fathers in the selection of spouses is just, uh, duh. So are you saying that, that you, we just have to present these two people who have never met? No, I don't think I'd advocate for something like that, but I would most definitely advocate for godly children being raised in godly household by godly parents who are very much involved in the process of who their children are going to marry and, and who the children are very much deferring to their wise and loving parents going, what do you think? What do you see? Help us navigate this. Um, do you have affection and attraction for one another? You both love and follow King Jesus. These families, that... Can we not see that would be God's ideal? Well, that was, that was his intention. Hey, Jewish boy, Jewish girl, hey, we know each other. Hey, we can all see what's happening here. Mom and dad are involved. These two are spending time together. This is a good thing. Let's support this. Let's encourage this instead of like, who are you bringing home? Okay, well, you know, whatever makes you happy. You know, who are we to say anything? Romeo and Juliet. You're just, you know, we can't stand in the way of it. So there's a lot of foolish modernity that comes in here. Didn't intend to share any of that, but um, th- there's wisdom there. So what are they saying? We're going to stop giving our daughters to these other people, and we're going to stop uh, sending our sons to marry their daughters. Why? Because they're godless. Yes. Like, how can two walk together unless they be agreed? So is, are you saying that they couldn't be a good husband or a good wife? No, there's non-believers who could certainly be kind and be good and be loving. I mean, we all know people who are unsaved who have otherwise good marriages, Um, And and there's a non-believer could be married to a believer and they could even love that person. But there's always going to be a a large degree of disunity in the most important area. So in the new covenant, what does this look like for us? What is our application from what we see here in verse 30? At the time, again, this was addressed to parents because they were arranging for the marriages of their children. In our moment, it would apply to us as individuals saying something like, we will not marry unbelievers and we will not allow unbelievers to marry us. Those, those two people, a believer and a non-believer, they can't be one if they're not unified in the pursuit of the one who is above us all. There can't be an ultimate unity. Well, we love each other. Well, that's good, and that's a starting point. But if we don't love King Jesus and we're not devoted to him, how can two become one? As the scripture says we're supposed to in marriage, there's always going to be some, some misguided loyalties. There's always going to be some misunderstandings of priorities and then when you think about children being raised in that environment, well, who wins out? Well, they should love and follow King Jesus. Well, I think they should do whatever they want to do and whatever makes them happy. Well, now, now we have what was intended to be a godly seed whose lives are destroyed when they could have been rescued. So this is a standard. Our romantic life must be surrendered to God. Our sexual life must be surrendered to God. This is only for blessing. Again, the world would tell us, the devil would tell us, 
God, he just looks at what's fun and he goes, well, let me make rules against that. No, instead, (laughs) God says, I know what's best. I know what it creates the most human flourishing. I know what creates the ideals. And, And everybody on the extremes of these knows that. It's the middle where people don't get it. People who have walked in God's ideal, people who were sexually chased up until their wedding night and who have spent a lifetime with only one person, they know and they can appreciate and they can rejoice and go, duh, this is so good. And people on the other end of the spectrum who live in absolute nightmare of rotating spouses or rotating boyfriends or rotating girlfriends, um, people who live in extreme poverty situations, who live lifestyles of just I don't know where he went or I don't know where she went or we can just trade. They recognize God's bit like if you were to say to that person, don't you think this would be better? than Yes, that's obvious to them. But it's here in the middle. It's here in the it's not too bad. It's not too good. It's here in the middle where people can think, man, I, I really want the pleasures of sin. Well, there's pleasure in sin for a season, but the season runs out. But God's ways, God's ways, there's no limit. There's no limit on the end. It's from glory to glory to glory. It's from ideal to ideal to ideal. So this is God's best. God's saying, I love you. I want what's best for you. It's not a, that looks fun. You stop doing that. God's saying, no, no, no. It may seem tempting. It may seem ideal, but it's not. I have the best thing for you. Repent of your sin. That's what they're doing. They're saying, we've messed this up. We're going to stop doing this. We're going to do it God's way. We're going to do it God's best. So people who live in God's best can recognize that. People who have lived in Satan's worst can recognize that. It's an obvious and shining light. Of course it makes sense to to be faithfully committed to only one sexual partner your entire life. What a salvation. What a relief. Unlike Solomon, like we said, with his hundreds of wives. Well, that sounds pretty awesome. Well, he was led astray to false gods. So when we're walking with someone who loves the Lord, when we have a spouse who loves God, You know what happens when you stumble now? They pick you up and they say, hey, back to Jesus. Hey, back to Jesus. When you're walking with a spouse who doesn't love the Lord and you stumble and they go, it doesn't matter. You know, it doesn't really matter. Yeah, yeah, come come this way with me. And we, we continue to go on the path to nowhere. So it's such a blessing to have a godly spouse for a million reasons that we don't have time to get into all of them, but there's a few. So this is significant. That we are to reject those This is so significant that we are to even reject those who claim that they are Christians but live in sexual immorality. So this is, why, this is what this looks like in the New Testament. God's standards are so high. Are we to interact with the world? Most definitely, of course. But God makes a distinction. He says, but if there's a person who, who names the name of Christ and they still live in sexual immorality, you are to judge and separate from them. You're not even allowed to eat with them. What? I'm not allowed to eat with That's right. Why? Because God loves them and he wants them saved and he wants them rescued and he wants the weight of this judgment to draw them back to repentance. He wants them to feel this separation. You don't get all the advantages whenever you're not living in faithfulness. So if I'm living in sexual sin, you're not allowed to eat with me. Why? Because God wants me to repent and I need to feel the consequences of broken fellowship with him and his people. And it's, this is a blessing. This is a restorative thing. Well, who do you think you are? I don't think I'm anybody. I just think I know how to read and I have basic reading comprehension. So I trust God. I trust his ways. Well, that seems mean to me. 
Well, spoken like a backslider, but I'm not going to take your word for it. I'm going to take it. I'm going to take God's word for it. I'm more scared of him than I am of you. I don't intend to hurt you. I tend to restore you. But the very fact that you don't believe you need restoration shows that you're in grave danger. The fact that you're not humble and in need of in seeing you're in need of restoration is even more terrifying because God opposes the proud and he gives grace to the humble. So if you'll humble yourself, you'll find nothing but grace in the church. You'll find a feast. You'll find a celebration. Welcome home. We're going to put the gold ring on you. We're going to kill the fatted calf. But as long as you go, I don't really, I don't need forgiveness. Then we go, then you can't have it. (laughs) If you don't need it, then you can't have it. Well, yeah, I don't, I don't need it. Well, I'll go to, I'll go up the road then. I'm, I'm sure you will. And you'll be loved. You'll be loved here, no matter what you do. But the behaviors will change. So they made a, a definitive decision. We will not give our daughters and we will not give our sons. Why? We're going to purify our pursuit of God. That was the first thing they did. The, the second thing they committed to, again, recognizing their moment. What do we need? We, we don't live in every other generation. We live in this one. We live in this particular moment. What else did they decide that they wanted to emphasize with this written renewal of the covenant? Verse 31, and if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day, and we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. So what are they doing here? Well, they're not, here in verse 31, we see them focusing on their business dealings. First thing was their romantic relationships. They said, we're way out of order here. We're way out of alignment with the will of God. Here's the next thing we can notice that we're doing and that we're really screwing up compared to what God is, his standard is. It's our business dealings. We're not honoring the Sabbath. They were not supposed to have any business interactions, buying, selling, trading on the Sabbath. And then on the seventh year, they're supposed to let the land rest. Well, you're not supposed to plant. You're not supposed to harvest. Why? The Lord even promises in his goodness, I will give you a triple harvest in the sixth year to get you through for the coming years. But you must let the land rest. God won't let us make more money. God is calling you to rest. It's called a blessing. Just like the sexual rules, this is for your thriving. This is for your best. Well, I'd like to make more money or I'd like to have more partners. Well, it'll be better if you don't. You want what's best? Yeah, I want the best thing. Good. Then walk by faith and trust that I'm telling you this is what the best thing would look like. This is what the ideal would look like. So in their business dealings, they're not supposed to be buying or selling anything on the Sabbath day. But of course, the temptation there is if I'm going to be doing business one less day per week, that means I'm losing money. My competitors are getting ahead of me, right? That's the belief. No, this is called walking by faith and trusting God. God does more in six days than anybody else can do in seven. God creates the universe in six days. He doesn't take seven days to do it. He creates it in six days as a model, not because he was tired, but as a model for us to even show us, I will, I will do the very thing that I expect and require of you to do. And again, the thing I'm requiring of you is take a nap. <laughs> like, man, God is such a taskmaster, right? Yeah, take a nap. You know, go worship with the saints. Yeah, John Michael, just want to know, if I may interject, I went to the Holy Lands in 2000 with the family. And they literally, on Friday night, they shut the elevators down. You have to use the stairs. I mean, they don't, I mean, the whole place shuts down until Saturday morning. Yeah. I mean, it's still like that still to this day. Wow. Yeah, modern Jews, they, they would honor yeah. the Sabbath and they would continue to find. And again, the outward expressions can get nitpicky, right? The outward expression can still miss the heart 
of the thing. Because even that example is funny because I'm like, the ele- that you made them work more by going up the stairs rather than using them. I'm thinking the elevator would provide more rest rather than the stairs. So we could easily get caught up in the, am I allowed to this? Am I allowed to this? Am I allowed to... Capture the spirit of the thing and the new co- as a new covenant believer. What is the spirit of the thing? The Lord is calling you to rest. So I'm allowed to work seven days? You've just missed the point. The point is the Lord is calling us to rest. But what are they recognizing? They're recognizing that they are called to walk by faith and trust in the Lord. God wants his people to look different from the rest of the world. Of course, he wants the whole rest of the world to look like his people because he wants the whole world to be his people. That's his purpose. That's his motive. But look, hey, world, look at this one nation. Look at how they do everything different from everybody else and look how they're more blessed than anybody else. It doesn't make any sense. And this is the point of a testimony. Look at this marriage. It's different from all the conventional wisdom that that modernity would tell you to do. And look how thriving this husband and wife are. Look at these children. Look at the blessing on this household. But it's so different compared to everything that we've seen and heard. This is always the Lord's intention. Chick-fil-A knows all about this, right? They make more money per store than any other fast food restaurant in the entire world. They don't make more than any other because they don't have as many stores. So McDonald's, I think, is like at the top per year income. But per store, who makes the most money per year? It's Chick-fil-A. The average Chick-fil-A store makes about $4 million per year compared to the average McDonald's store per year is about, six, uh, about $2 million. So Chick-fil-A is doing $4 million each store. That Gloucester store, hypothetical, I think that one's, it was the best in the country for multiple years. So he's probably, John Gordon's killing it. But John's doing way better. But $4 million per year compared to all the other places running seven days a week. How is that possible? Well, Chick-fil-A is very bold and clear about their motive. It's not like, we just wanted to take a day off because we're lazy. No, they're like, this is to honor God. We see that this is to help our people. We want our people to be able to be in church for worship. And surprise, surprise, how is this possible? Well, the Lord brings a triple harvest on the sixth year. So this was another thing they're supposed to do. A whole year where a poor people, generally speaking, a poor people, this is not a wealthy people. These are subsistence farmers. This is like, we're just making enough to eat. We, we plant our crops, we kill our animals, and life is going on. But man, we better not have a famine or we're in big, big, big trouble because there's not like a big food chain and a lot of storage. We don't have tons of canned goods. And the Lord says, you're going to take the seventh year off. And, and they're going, you know what? We've dropped the ball on all this. We, we need to be set apart. This is what we need to come back to. So faith has action, not just a mental acknowledgement. Yeah, Sabbath is good. Sabbath is important, right? Well, we would all get answers right on a paper test. But what does my life look like? That's, what, that's where my faith really shows up. Faith without works is what? Dead. It's dead. So congratulations, you have faith. It's just not alive if you're not walking in it. So he also called for the Sabbath year, the resting of the land, resting his people, a gift, not a penalty, because the Lord also said, hey, I'm going to give you a triple harvest in the sixth year. That's going to get you through the seventh year. And then the eighth year, you're planting, but you don't have those crops yet, so you still have to wait. So he says, I'm going to give you plenty to make it through until that ninth year harvest shows up because he's good. So people without a father in heaven think that cheating and avoiding integrity is an advantage. This is what this could look like for us. It's not just about Sabbath. It's about what are all of your business dealings look like? How can I get ahead? What are all kinds of ways we may be tempted to get ahead? Uh, let me just fudge those numbers. Let me adjust that. Uh, this is, is that a tax write-off? Yeah, it seems like a tax write-off. 
uh, you know, making all kinds of justifications. But that's the kind of person who doesn't have a heavenly father who keeps a different set of books. You want to separate from the world? Then do things in your business with the highest standard of integrity. With your taxes, with your marketing, with your fulfillment for your clients. The blessing of the Lord makes rich and adds no sorrow with it. So God keeps a different set of books and he blesses according to faithfulness. And his ways are different and better. Verse 32, what was the third thing they emphasized? So the first thing was the romantic relationships. We're going to prioritize God's ways. Second thing, we're going to prioritize God's ways in our business dealings and our Sabbath. Verse 32, we also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. And then the whole thing, it's listed nine times here. That phrase, the house of our God, is what's listed. They get into the details and they explain why. Hey, here's what this goes to. Here's what has to happen. The temple required a lot. There's a lot going on. Who's going to do this? Who's going to do that? Who's gonna... There's all kinds of jobs and responsibilities, and temple worship had fallen off. So they're saying, we want to restore, we want to renew temple worship, and it's going to take the financial commitment that the law required. So we're going to bring back all of these, all of these tithes, these taxes. And again, these are doable things for a people who have a heavenly father who's their ultimate provider so that the house of the Lord can be the house of prayer so that all nations can come in and see that God is being worshiped, that God is being glorified. If God's people aren't even prioritizing the worship of God, what can we really expect of the pagan and heathen nations around them? What can we expect of Persia? The Jews aren't even honoring God. They're allowed to do their thing inside Jerusalem, but they don't. They don't care. So why are we going to be motivated? Wow, wow, you really love your God a lot. Yeah, we just haven't got to the temple thing. It's just kind of like, yeah, it's a lot to keep up with. And Bob was supposed to bring the wood last week, and he forgot, and we just kind of fell off after that. And, you know, I think next week's me, but I'm not so sure. That lacks attitude. It comes from a heart. But they're saying, we're committing. Put my name on it. Put a curse on me and a blessing as well. Of course, they're pursuing the blessing. That's what they're after. They had stopped the temple ministry, but they were reviving it because their hearts had been revived. So in the new covenant, of course, we don't have a house of God. And that's not just because we meet in a YMCA. Someday when we build some beautiful facility, I still won't say, welcome to the house of God. I'll still say, we, the collective body of Christ, are the house of God. That's what the New Testament teaches. You are living stones. Stones, what's that mean? Well, temple. Remember, they're thinking about the temple, and that's what Peter was teaching them. You, everybody, go the temple, the temple, that's where the Lord lived. But we see Paul and we see Peter teaching the saints in the New Testament, hey, we're not looking to the building anymore. Yes. We are the building. Yes. Christ is the cornerstone, and yes. we are living stones, and together, well, I'm the church all by myself. No, you're not. That is not New Testament teaching. You're not the church all by yourself. The church is the gathered people of God. Well, me and the Lord have an understanding. That's nonsense. The Lord has an understanding. You either align to it or you don't align to it. But there's no me and the man upstairs got something worked out. That's not what they're doing here. They're not rewriting a new covenant. They're saying this is the old covenant and these are some particular areas of focus that we know we've dropped the ball. And this is where we're going to really prioritize. So in the same way, the scripture that says your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, even that verse, your body is not a reference to an individual. In the English reading on the surface, it would seem that way. But much like he's talking about you are the body of Christ and much like he's talking about you are living stones in the same way he's saying not you are the temple, although I am to a degree, but I can't stand alone. Yes. It's the gathered body of Christ. 
He's referring to the whole body, the community of faith and the church. So what would we commit to? Our commitment is to the people of God. This means that you need the church and the church needs you. Would it include all the, like, because they get very specific in the financial side and the tithes, of off, and tithes and offerings. Does it include that? Of course it includes that. But like everything else in the new covenant, more is required because more has been given. The new covenant, we don't, we ignorantly think, oh, the new covenant, everything's easier. Well, Jesus actually raised the bar in every way. You heard it said this way? Yeah, that's pretty tough. Well, I say this. What? That's more strict. Well, the good news is you have more power. You actually have power. You can do something different. So this is why in the book of Acts, we don't see the church coming to the apostles and agonizing over, is this the tithe? Do I have to tithe off? Is it pre-tax or post-tax? Because does it come out? We don't see that happening at all. We see a generous people eagerly caring for one another out of the abundance of heaven. I just sold a field. Here, take it. Anybody who has need, distribute it among the body. I don't want anybody to go without. The Lord only brings discipline when people lie about it. And when they come and say, hey, here, we sold a field. Here's our money. Like, they were doing it, what, for outward appearance. They didn't give all the money. Like, you didn't have to do it at all. You didn't have to do that. But the fact that you lied about it so that people would go, oh, Ananias and Sapphira, they sold a field. <laughs> and they gave all their money. And he asked them, is this all the money you got for the field? Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Why do you ask? Okay. You're dead. <laughs> Same thing. Is this all the money y'all got for the field? Oh, yeah, most definitely. Okay, you're also dead. God takes his church very seriously. God takes the purity very seriously. Why? Because the consequences are very serious. Because he's worthy, because he's holy, because he has what's best for us and he wants to bless us best. So I want to go back to, and we're going to close in verse 28. I want to emphasize what stood out to me more than anything else as I was reading and studying this chapter, the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who had separated themselves from the peoples of the lands. What, what did they separate themselves from? They separated themselves from the peoples of the lands. But how did they do it? They did it by separating unto the law of God. They didn't build a bunker they didn't just lock the city walls, although they did in a time and a way. They said there are moments where it's just a, an us moment. On the Sabbath, you may not buy and sell and trade with us. But they didn't separate by saying, let's run away into the mountains and just be our own little group. Let's just be our own little Christians and just cry and be pitiful and wait for Jesus to rescue us from the big bad world. No, the, the way we live separated from the world is by our obedience to God's word. That's Amen. the big secret. Amen. Jesus showed us that you are, to, you are supposed to be with the world. You're supposed to be with the ungodly. You're supposed to be with the sexually immoral. You're supposed to be with the drunkard. You're supposed to be with all these people, as long as they don't name the name of Christ. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. If they say that they're not a Christian, Jesus goes and eats with them. Yes. But, but the scripture says, but if they say, I'm a Christian, and I live this way, I'm like, okay, I can't. Right. No, 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 no. You're, you're, you're bringing... You're bringing deception and confusion to the name of Christ. We won't tolerate that. As long as you know you're not with Christ, then by all means, Jesus goes, eats with him. What's he, and of course, he gets accused. He's a drunkard. They say he has a demon. John the Baptist, he doesn't come eating or drinking. Jesus comes eating and drinking. They say he's a glutton and a drunkard. So there's always going to be accusation no matter what you do. How is Jesus set apart from the world? He doesn't run from them. He runs into the mix. This is what it means to be the salt and to be the light. When you're walking in faithfulness to the word of God, you are set apart. 
You don't have to hide from the world. We don't have to be afraid of the world. Ugh, I need a shelter. Well, he is our shelter. We live in him. It's in him we live and move and have our being. And he goes with us everywhere that we go. Now, this is not an advocacy for foolishness. This is not, uh, so there, there's a degree of wisdom, and I don't want to miscommunicate. There are certain places and situations. There are stupid places, there are stupid people, and there are stupid times that, that we don't want to be a part of things. Hey, we want to show up at this place at, at 3 a.m. on a Friday night where there's going to be people drinking and drugging? No. No, that, that's not what I'm talking about. But will I hang out with those same people the next day at lunch? Yes. But that's a different context altogether. I'm not trying to go into, hey, everybody. No, 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 that's, that's, a, that's darkness. And I, and I don't want any part of that. But those people, can, can one of those guys from that party last night come into my home to my DBS this week? Oh, absolutely. Yes. Uh, can me and him go see a movie Friday night? Oh, absolutely. Can me and him have a cigar in the backyard? Oh, absolutely. So I, I'm okay. I, I can be in these certain places. But, but Jesus didn't go to public orgies, Right? He hung out with these people at meals, but he did not go to the public orgies that were taking place and go, it's okay because I'm not partaking and I'm set apart. Like there, there's a degree. So probably obvious to all of you, but just wanted to make some clarifications like, well, I'm the light. So I can go, to, no, let's, let's, let's uh, have some wisdom and discernment in how this would work. So they separated themselves from the peoples by devoting themselves to the law of God. Romans 12, two speaks to this. Do not be conformed to this world. Okay, well, how am I supposed to do that? By running away from them and being Amish? It's an option, I suppose, but no, it's not the ideal. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That's the big secret. That's the big unlocked. You wanna be different? Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Where does that come from, I wonder? How might I renew my mind? It's with God's word. And then you may test. By testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. It's still going, I'm good. 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 11, Paul's writing to the Corinthians, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, but not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world. I wasn't talking about worldly people. I wasn't saying don't associate with the greedy or the swindlers or the idolaters since you'd have to go out of this world to not associate with them. But I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such a one. So he's saying like, no, no, no. When I wrote to you all in another letter saying don't associate with these people, I didn't mean worldly people. I meant people who would say that they're a brother in Christ and live that way. Like you'd have to leave the world entirely. So again, we're not abandoning. We're not running in fear. We stand in strong and we go, hey, God's kingdom is better. God's way is better. I know what you were doing last night and I know, I know it seemed like pleasure to you, but God has pleasures at his right hand forevermore. He has the best. He has abundance and his ways will actually fill you up instead of leaving you empty. Good. So our separation is not physical as Jesus showed us by spending time with the world's worst, but our separation is still thorough. God's people don't separate from the world by physically separating from non-believers. We separate from them by obeying God's word. This is what makes us distinct. It's from a place of faithfulness to God that we can be the salt and light that shows and welcomes them into God's kingdom. This is the distinct mark of a Christian. Of course, how are we going to make disciples if we're hiding from them? So we went to Pennsylvania a month or so ago now, two months ago, and Amish people, like, I'm sure there are brothers and sisters, love them. 
And at the same time, I don't think they have a lot of multiplication going on apart from their own children, which is good and is a blessing, but they're not exactly after the world. I even asked questions about, hey, could, so could someone join uh, these Amish communities? And I got mixed answers. Uh, one of the books that I read, the formal answer from Amish people is, if you sincerely desire to join, there's a way to do it. But everybody else I asked in person, they were like, yeah, that's pretty, we, we're really not interested in that. Uh, we're interested in, we have kids and, and we keep living Amish ways and we just kind of live and let, leave us alone, we'll leave you alone. It, it's this isolate, it's, are, 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 they, are they righteous living? Well, I sure hope so and I'm sure they are. Is it God glorifying in a lot of ways? I sure hope so and I'm sure it is. <laughs> but what, what about the world that's lost? What about the world that doesn't know? The, the point of Israel was not that they weren't allowed to interact with the world, is that you do it in a particular way. You do it God's ways so that the people can actually taste and see that the Lord is good. But I'm not shut up in my barn and going, nobody can even see. Nobody can taste and see anything. Yes. Nobody can interact. They can't see the way you raise your kids and go, wow, wow, that's, that's the wisdom of God. They can't see the way a husband and wife interact and go, wow, that's beautiful and loving. They can't see the, the goodness of God and your generosity and your kindness because you're, you're isolated. So we're, we're thankful that God calls us. We're thankful that God sends us. And that's exactly what he tells us to do. As we know, he says in Luke 10 too, the harvest is ready. It's the laborers that are few. The laborers can justify all kinds of reasons to not get out in the harvest. Well, it's scary out there. What if the harvest gets a hold of me? Like, you're gonna go get a hold of the harvest. Harvests don't attack you. We go get harvest and bring it in. Bring it into the storehouse. The harvest is ready, church. Whenever we first get our own hearts aligned, we now become the beacon of light, the city on a hill that Jesus said we are. This is what the purpose of Jerusalem always was, a city on a hill that the world could look at and go, sign me up for that. This is what God calls you to, the life where the world can look at that and go, sign me up for that. Like we said, they are going to fail again. You and I will sin, but the difference is we don't have to live in sin. We are not identified anymore as sinners. We are new creations in Christ. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That is our spiritual reality that we walk into as we renew our mind with the word of God. And we can only do it because of what Jesus has done and because the Holy Spirit has been given. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for setting apart your people, for bringing your church into the world with light, for sending us on your mission with purpose, for glorifying your name in the nations. Let the nations rejoice and be glad because they see, because they hear, because they can taste the salt, because they can see the light and they can enjoy your best. Lord, continue to grow us and mature us. Help us to walk more faithfully in obedience to your word. And as we do that, the world will get to be the beneficiaries of what you're doing. We don't, we don't set ourselves apart in an arrogant way or in a superior way. We set ourselves apart unto you because we love you and we, and we want to entice. We want to fill up your house with all the brothers and sisters. We want your house to be filled. We want your banquet table to be chock full of everyone feasting and rejoicing in the generosity and the kindness of our God. Continue to set us apart and make us workers in your harvest. The harvest is ready. It's the laborers that there's not enough of. God, we even rejoice in this moment, though, as you continue to establish more Bible studies in this church as you continue to set us apart as workers who are going out, telling the truth, sharing the good news, 
and pointing people to the King who loves us and created us all. Glorify your name in us and through us, Lord. And now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine down upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you great peace. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.